Want to cut cooling bills without cutting comfort? Lower utility costs and enjoy cool and consistent comfort with a highly efficient air conditioner from Luxair. With Luxair's consumer rebate program, educators, nurses, first responders, military personnel, and veterans can enjoy exclusive rebates on qualifying purchases of Luxair equipment. To learn more, call G-Team Mechanical at 765-376-3042 or visit gteamhvac.com. They'll recommend a system tailored to your home that provides comfort, energy savings, and lasting performance. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Oh, what a long offseason it has been, but uh, it is over now, and it is time to get the 2023 campaign underway. The green flag is ready to fly. And we've got a car that gets off the ground at the rear of the field, and cars are stacked up off of turn number three. That is a huge accident involving as many as four cars, multiple cars involved in an opening lap crash. Here comes Scott McLaughlin, slams to a halt. It should be a relatively quick fuel. Off go the greens, on go a set of sticker blacks. The left rear, no, the left front was the hang-up. It did take a little while, and still under eight-second pit stop, and he's down and away. Michael Young, you call it into turn one. It's going to be close. Scott McLaughlin making his way over the track. They nearly touch. Romain Grosjean will fall in behind Scott McLaughlin. Scott McLaughlin just barely beat him out, but right now Grosjean is the one with the momentum. They go side-by-side into turn number four. He squeezes him to the bottom of the racetrack. They make contact at Roman Grosjean and Scott McLaughlin go into the tire barrier. Full course caution on lap 71 here on the street to pink St. Petersburg. Davey, how about that turn of events? And there will be but three laps to go next time by as we see they come off of turn number 14. Marcus Erickson goes to the high side. A problem for Pato Award. Davey Hamilton, what was that off of turn number 14? Yeah, just it's like he almost had a wheel spinner, ran out of fuel or something. It was crazy, just slowed down. Erickson caught hit by surprise, was able to fly right by him. Now he's got to deal with Scott Dixon right behind him. Three laps to go, and Marcus Erickson goes to the point of bottom off of turn number 14 for Pato Award. It has been a wild and Woolley, Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg. The advance auto park, Chet Quinn checkered flag in the air, and it is victory lane on the streets of St. Petersburg for Marcus Erickson. He grabs the win. Battle Award finishes second. Scott Dixon third. Yeah, I had a really bad restart. I got out in the marbles and I lost a lot, and I was under big pressure from my teammates, but managed to sort of get going, and then just got my head down. I knew my car was really good, so I just started to hunt him down, and I knew in the end of the stints we were strong, so I wanted to put pressure on for the end and see if he did any mistakes. Uh, I don't know what happened, obviously. Uh, you know, I want to overtake him uh, on track and not like that, but still, that's racing. Sometimes that happens, and we were there to, to pick it up, and I think we are fully deserved uh, of, of this victory. And we are off and running in 2023. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, the fan in Indianapolis. Kevin Lee, Kirk Cavan, Eddie Garrison in our studios in downtown Indianapolis. Uh, we have one in the books, and this is going to take a while. Luckily, we have the full two hours tonight to go over Marcus Erickson winning the Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg with several others in position to win. It went away for one reason or another. Your Twitter questions are coming up. A lot already in at Kevin Lee 23 at Kirk Cavan. Happy new season. Where do we want to start? Uh, how about we start with, <laughs> it feels good to get one of the books. You know, we have we took so long, it felt like, to get to the start of this season. I mean, you remember we raced, what, September 10th, September 11th? 
uh, kind of feels like, you know, it's we've had a lot of talking about the season. We've had some driver movement. And finally, to see a green flag or several green flags as the race went, weekend went on, it was it just kind of be good to get back to school, so to speak. And we talk about that a lot, but it, it really does feel like at first time you see cars in anger, you see crew members in different shirts. We see, you know, different perspectives, uh, just everything new. And I think even though we had had the uh, test at the Thermal Club, this felt like, you know, like we're really going to do something for real. And so for all those reasons, I'm happy to be back. When we talk about winners, obviously, we're going to talk about Chip Ganassi racing with Marcus Erickson winning, Scott Dixon on the podium. Um, probably so, even though they're disappointed, Errol McLaren with a second and fourth place finish. Uh, but it's also Delara and Tadis uh, and Haas Automation. They're the part suppliers uh, for IndyCar and then the feeder series as well, because there was mass carnage. And that's why in the Twitter promo today that I, that I posted, uh, I took something that our, our buddy Matt Arcoletta did, which I think was perfect, showing you know, basically the race car graveyard from the helicopter shot and then inserting the actor who does the mayhem commercials on television, because that's what it seemed. Uh, it was it was odd, but it was kind of expected from the very beginning. And I guess I I have. I, I think I have uh, s- some intel going into things that we might be in for a rude awakening and what impacted a lot of things, whether it was. Indy next from Hunter McElray, one of the championship contenders, crashing at the start of practice, going through a bump in turn three. Christian Rasmussen, several IndyCar drivers. So our resident driver, Jackson Lee, they were the first Formula Car series on track on Friday morning before USF 2000, before lights next IndyCar. And he said, and he's been there two other times, he said on the outlap, I almost lost it into the wall going over that bump. That's something you're just not going to notice on the track walk. It had been repaved there, and obviously it's different, and it led to a lot of things. And and we'll get into uh, Jackson had a good weekend. We'll get into that later on. I think I'll save that for the last segment of the show because we got a lot of IndyCar things we want to get to, and we'll talk about Indy next as well coming up. I think the other big winner in this was was the Vice production crew. They've they've been really <laughs> excited about, you know, what would this look like? What would the camera angles generate? What would the personalities between the drivers and their stress, you know, and their excitement to get back to racing and, you know, what are the highs and lows, the the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat look like and and the camera footage which they'll have access to, you know, highlights of or low lights, depending on your perspective. But I think, you know, just them seeing what we've been talking about, you know, this is high drama. This isn't, you know, football where, you know, where somebody might have a, an injury timeout. This, this is dramatic. This is exciting. And, you know, if one of the, I think the signature moment of the weekend for me is the replay where the car Benjamin Peterson hits Devlin DeFrancesco and creates this, you know, this vertical, uh, you know, situation, you can hear the roar of the crowd and it is a gasp of, of a car in the air at that altitude. And so I think vice has to be really excited that, 
you know, to 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 them, they're going to see this every week. Now that we know that's not the case. I, I did tell the producer it's not like this every week. Yeah, <laughs> it's someone on pit lane. I said, it, this is a little bit out of the ordinary, but you're right. If they can't make this interesting, uh, then it's not going to happen, but they will. H- have you watched any of the uh, PGA documentary? Did we talk about this on the air last week? Uh, we we only mentioned that that they have been part of it, uh, but I don't think we talked about maybe where you're leading us to. So I, I watched uh, maybe before St. Pete. So a couple of weeks ago, I watched the first five episodes and I'm not a I like to play golf, but I'm not going to tell you I watch golf on television. I don't unless I want to take a nap. Uh, but it was excellent. It was fantastic. And it's going to be a different format because that was done in more of the drive to survive format meaning they had a lot of time to go back over it that that was from last season so they had all kinds of time to really whittle on it and they basically are doing that and i'm not i'm still not certain i haven't asked in a few weeks what their direction is but in that case just like drive to survive they were focusing on one or two golfers each episode and it was really well done with some golfers we know and the last episode I saw, and I've already forgotten his name, it's a golfer I've never heard of. And it was just a fantastic underdog story. And they covered him through, you know, basically being quite honest that, you know, I'm just hoping to survive and, and make a living, but I'm never going to win. And he comes up uh, winning an event. I think he won an event. He at least came close to winning a big event. And well done. So that gives me a lot of confidence that they're going to do well with this product as well. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, they've been really excited. But again, to see it in action and and to kind of feel the emotions, you know, they've gotten really close already in a short period of time to some of these drivers. Uh, they have a they have a connection, you know, they just, you know, as we know and and fans of of this sport know, it's really easy to kind of gravitate to some of these guys you know the you know the rossies the connor dailies the hinchcliffs even though he's not driving right now you know they have a personality that is infectious uh they they give you a reason to root for them and you know and even like even if they haven't you know really gotten close to a de francesco or or benjamin peterson yet by knowing one of these 27 drivers or many of them you understand or at least you have a, a rooting interest or a, or a following when something goes awry. And so I can appreciate that they must have been holding their breaths as much as, you know, the race fans because they know what's at stake or they're learning. And so, yeah, this docu-series that, that begins uh, April 27th, you know, we're going to have, what, four races, three races by the time – that first episode airs, but they're gaining material. And, you know, I said to them, you know, in a, in a meeting, and I'm sure they've heard this many times. I mean, you just don't know someone may not come back from this lap or this race. And, and I don't mean necessarily in the worst way, but you know, there may be injuries. There may be something that happens that you've never seen before. And I think this first race, while it did a lot for us as, as fans of this sport, it certainly gave the vice people and the people making this this show a sense of this is different than other sports. This isn't just penalties and and uh, suspensions and you know these are these are real people in real dangerous situations. And I think it's good for them to see that first race like we saw it. 
So let's start with how the race was won and the different legitimate contenders that we had. And and maybe it starts from the qualifying weekend. And uh, we had been impressed with what Andretti Autosport had done and what limited testing there was. And, you know, I talked about how I expected Kyle Kirkwood to be really strong. And he was, and Colton Herta was, and Ramon Grosjean was. And if Kirkwood doesn't go into the wall in qualifying after making the fast six for the first time, uh, they might have started one, two, three. They seem to be the fastest. They instead start one, two, and five in this race. Grosjean is in control where it switched a little bit was at the very end of the first stint. And I mentioned this on the pit call when Grosjean came in because I was looking at lap times. And the lap time before he pitted, that that's not necessarily the in lap. That's probably the one before. Because I looked at it probably 15 seconds before he got to pit lane, and it was three seconds slower than Scott McLaughlin's lap. McLaughlin started on primaries. He was going to go long anyway. So Grosjean got the advantage over Herta because he made the alternates last much longer. Herta fell off like a cliff towards the end, lost several spots before he stopped three, four laps earlier than Grosjean. Grosjean ultimately probably should have pitted one lap earlier, but they're trying to stay out to lap 32. He did get there, but then essentially lost the lead out of those slow final couple of laps. Yeah, that's, I thought it was, you know, it was interesting to watch the Herta versus Grosjean tire management. And it's not that, you know, Herta doesn't have the experience. He certainly does. But Grosjean's experience in this particular race was very much on display. I thought that was, you know, if you were paying attention to to his consistent lap times, and I was on, you know, the IndyCar mobile app and and had it on racecontrol.indycar.com, which you can follow along with lap times from from afar, even if you're not, you know, sitting on a timing stand, you could see that there was a big difference between what Grosjean was able to do late in that segment and what Colton Herta was able to do or couldn't do. And and so I really thought that was you know, it really spoke to Grosjean's years of experience. Now, maybe, you know, it didn't that didn't come into play a great deal, but I it would it certainly felt that way. Let's put it that way. And and it was a deciding factor in in where those two came out on back on the racetrack when it was time to complete that first stop. So hats off to Grosjean because you know, there were other drivers fading as well, but Colton spent most of that first segment sort of in his shadow, in Grosjean's mm-hmm. shadow. And whether it was running right behind him or or just experience, whichever combination, or maybe it was set up too in play. Uh, maybe Grosjean's was just set up for a better, or it turned out to be a better setup for tire management. Whichever the case was, it certainly made a big difference. And then we got a precursor of what was to come after the first pit stop. Ultimately, what ended up deciding the race for both Grosjean and McLaughlin. McLaughlin took control because of faster in and out laps, uh, and they nearly came together, pitting on different laps after the first stop. Same scenario, I think I, I know same scenario in as they went through turn four. Do you recall? Was it the same situation? Was who who was just coming out of the pits? Yeah, I think I think Grosjean would have pitted first. McLaughlin probably pitted a lap later, barely beat Grosjean, 
back onto the racetrack, but was on colder tires. Grosjean tried to go around the outside. McLaughlin was having none of it. And a very subtle hip check. This time, Grosjean backs out of it, loses momentum, momentum, but stays on the track. Do I have that accurate? Yeah, that's 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 pretty close, as I recall it as well. Um, but yeah, it was the difference. Pit stop one versus pit stop two was Grosjean not willing to back out of it the second time. And at least or thought he had more momentum the second time. So he, he stayed with it, but uh, yeah, it was there, there, while they pitted a little bit differently, um, you know, we saw basically their same race out of both of them. The other thing that was, you know, different tire sh- strategies and so forth. But one of the things that, um, that you point out there, yeah, McL- McLaughlin would have been on the alternates, yeah. Yes. In that after that first stop, so he had a little bit more grip, even on the cold tires, to help him give Grosjean just a teeny bit more room. And while they did make very, very slight contact, not enough that hip checked him in, into the wall and also allowed him to make the corner. Yeah, that that was a different we saw that really come into play on the second after the second stop, because at that point, uh McLaughlin has has primary tires and doesn't have quite the grip that he had the last time that that scenario occurred. But you point out something, and for somebody who who watches these races sort of more of as, as a novice, not the two of us, but others that might be listening as you're driving around Indianapolis, you know, we talk about these in and out laps before a pit stop. You know, there really are something interesting to watch when a driver, you know, maybe the driver in the lead pits. Watching the the second place driver, if you will, have clean racetrack to be able to just now haul the mail and mm-hmm. not have traffic to deal with. I mean, that can be the difference of a second or two uh, on the racetrack when they come through the pit cycle. You know, the, for those of you who just don't watch it maybe as closely as some of our listeners, these are just hugely important. And, and uh, you know, when a driver catches traffic, then he, you know, will often pit because he's he's hung up. So, you know, when we talk about these things, really instrumental in, in how these races play out. The in-lap is a qualifying lap. Push, push, push. They're using push to pass. But unlike qualifying, they're doing it on very old tires. So that's a special skill. That's what separates the best from those not quite as good. And then the outlap is you're still pushing hard, but it's who can hang on on cold tires. That's when you're in most peril to crash. That's when it's most difficult. And again, that's what separates uh, the best from the rest in that situation. So stop. Go ahead. And I was going to say the other thing that's critical in all this is the strategist who can help find you a little bit of a gap to come out either not right behind traffic or in a space where you've got the ability to kind of breathe a little bit. Um, and so, you know, some of the best strategists are really crucial here. And and obviously we got good ones at Andretti and, and Penske, but uh, to, to, to make sure you don't come out in traffic is another really key element in these street circuit races. So stop number two was going to be the race, two stop race, last stop. It's, you can pass, but it's difficult. So they knew that was the, the opportunity. Grosjean had come in uh, a lap 
if not two earlier. I think one. One lap, one lap earlier. So his tires are just barely up to temp. In a 1.8-mile track, I'm not sure, though. It's not like Road America, uh, where you've gone four miles. They're still not quite optimum yet by the time you get to turn four of your second lap. But they're certainly better than the guy that just came off pit road. McLaughlin just barely beats him back onto the track. And then the thought is, really, the race is going to turn four. If Grosjean is going to pass him, it is going to be in turn four. If McLaughlin can stay in front of him, he is likely to win the race, unless he has something like what happened to Pato Award late in the race. And, and we know, you know, other things can happen, but good chance that was deciding the race. Similar scenario to the last time. Difference is, though, that McLaughlin is on the primaries. They take heat. They're not as soft. They take even longer to find heat in the tires and find grip. So while he, in, in our inter interview on Peacock, immediately took the blame and said, it's my fault, I don't recall either driver in the booth assessing blame. And, and for those that didn't see it, what happened is uh, Grosjean is drag racing him. He's side by side going into turn four. Uh, the next best passing area other than turn one and the last chance on this lap noses ahead just barely before they get to the braking zone, but they're really close. McLaughlin's not willing to give it up. Rojan's not willing to give it up. Uh, McLaughlin probably slides a little bit further left in the right-hand corner than he wants. They make contact. Grosjean straight into the tires. Uh, and McLaughlin doesn't make it either. He's into the tires, and that ends the race for the two. Effectively, Grosjean got out of the tires, a lap down, had to serve a penalty. He was assessed blame in that situation. Now, one way to look at it is if you're on the outside, you're kind of taking a risk. That's the way everybody has always looked at it. The inside is mine. However, I think the difference is that McLaughlin would have preferred to just have given him just a little bit more room very apologetic in our conversation. I think I saw something on social media or maybe another interview later is that, you know what, we're racing for the win and and I'm going to go hard. I want to race a little bit better than that, summarizing what he was saying. But it sounds like after looking at it again, maybe he's backtracking just a teeny bit. Yeah, he probably is just a little bit. You know, there was I would hate to say there's there's bumps going into four, but it certainly is a little bit inconsistent uh, it's a street circuit. And so there's a little bit of a chatter, it looks like, in the in the tires and braking on behalf of of Grosjean, which, you know, he didn't make the corner either. You know, that's kind of the thing I looked at. You know, if if he hip checks Grosjean into the into the tire barrier and McLaughlin continues on, you know, then you start to say, well, did he leave him enough room? Did he have the corner? But but McLaughlin didn't make the corner either. You know, mm -hmm. yes, there was contact in there, but neither one of them made the corner. So it 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 makes it a little easier to to assess a penalty and some blame on McLaughlin for that one. But um, you know, you're if, right. If it's he a, makes the corner, it's probably the same as the first situation. Correct. It's, and that's the difference. To make the corner, he has to be another four or five inches to the right, and he has he to be a it has to be a little more in control. I think yeah. that's the other thing, you know, and we've just discussed it, that the the tires the first time 
were were the alternate softer tires, so he's got a little bit more grip. That helps him. The second time, the key time in question, he doesn't quite have control of his car because his tire temps in a harder compound car tire, they're not ready for that moment. And he needs to know that as well. Just like Grosjean needs to know he's probably in a position of peril uh, being on the outside. McLaughlin's got to understand that he may not he may not have the grip to uh, to complete that pass. So the, the reason I brought that up is, you know, I think the argument could be made that it's not 100% all on McLaughlin and you can kind of understand. However, I think it was uh, very well done by McLaughlin and a smart move to just say, you know what, it's my fault. What doesn't do him any good to argue about it. Let's, uh, and as much as we all want uh, rivals and people hating each other and things like that. If you're if you're the driver, that doesn't help your situation because at some point down the line, you may need a break from Grosjean. Uh, maybe he's a lap down and you want him to get out of the way or you just want him to race you the way you want to be raced. So that's that's what I would advise drivers to do. Approach that the same way McLaughlin did, even if you do have a little bit of doubt in your mind especially since you didn't win the race anyway, you still finished a lap down. You were penalized uh, in that situation. So someone else has determined that you were at fault. Just say it's my fault and be done with it. That that way you don't, uh, it, it just allows you to move on much quicker. It does. It very much does. And I, I really, uh, first of all, I wasn't surprised at McLaughlin going down and, and apologizing First on television, and then to actually Grosjean's, uh, you know, to his, you know, his space and apologizing. You know, it's it's one of those situations. I, I wasn't surprised because that's who McLaughlin is. McLaughlin's really one of the real straight up guys in the sport. He's one of the most, as I've watched him both in interviews and my personal interaction with him. That's who he is. Yep. Uh, sometimes we have drivers, and we and you and I both know this. We've got some drivers in the paddock that are different on television than they are in person. Not a great deal difference, but there's a little bit of a difference there. But not not McLaughlin. That's who he is. The second thing I would say is that you know I wouldn't give a hundred percent of the blame to McLaughlin, but I'm certainly willing to give him his fifty percent, and and probably maybe, more, maybe yeah, probably, probably more. more. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to be at least 50-50 or or more, then then you're probably doing yourself well and and the situation right to say what McLaughlin said, and that is, I I, I need to be better than that. And it was probably good to defuse the situation, too, because as he got out of the car, he was getting booed. Um, One thought would be there, there were some DHL people and some Andretti supporters in the area, and another thought that I wondered about is that you know, to the casual fan, Grosjean is one of the most well-known drivers. He is the feel-good story, the guy who escaped the fiery crash. He's the star, one of the stars from Drive to Survive, who hasn't won a race in 12 years, and he was on the brink, and you kept him from that. So I felt bad for Scott, but his response in that, and like you talked about, is one of the reason. I think some people get sick of us talking about him, but it's one of the reasons why we talk about him because he's very likable. He's very genuine. And for a while, I was feeling really good about my preseason prediction for him winning the championship. But he came out and won again in race one. Now, he still might win the championship, but boy, there's not 
there's not too much room for error. What does help him is what I said to him in his second question is that, you know, some others. Uh, Power has a mediocre day. Newgarden has a rough day. Uh, several that you, Colton Herta uh, does not score points in a successful manner today. Uh, so that helps his cause just a little bit. But So that's one story. Second thing I guess we'll explain is Pato Award is there to essentially inherit a victory, and it looks like he's going to cruise. Marcus Erickson is lingering, and he's closing the gap a little bit, so it's not quite done, but it probably is. Uh, what happened to Pato Award was something I've heard of happening a few times before. It's essentially a misfire. The The engine loses oxygen for a brief moment, and uh, Chevrolet sent out a release and basically said, it's a drop of engine torque, and it requires a pedal lift to extinguish the the little fire in the, the plenum, is what they call a plenum event. And I, as far as I know, I could be wrong on this, but I don't, I think it's just random. Yeah, I think you know, so and, too. And, and I, I, I feel for Pato in the moment, but to say that, you know, we can't have this happen, I don't know how you stop that from happening i don't maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong maybe there is something in the tuning of the engine from chevrolet or from what the team is doing so that is one of the questions i will ask before the next event um but i'm not aware of anything that can be done to keep that from happening i i agree with that and i'm not an engine guy to be able to dissect the solution but i think one of the the best uh descriptions layman's terms it's just a hiccup it's a hiccup in the engine and it causes a brief uh kind of stall if you will and that that loss of momentum was enough just enough for erickson to scoot past so um you know it's unfortunate uh you know for uh for award but it didn't it didn't put him in the wall and it didn't you know it didn't cause a fire. It, it just was a brief little hiccup that ended up costing him a position, obviously a very important position when you're, you know, you're looking at the race as a race win and the points and the notoriety and, and the prestige that come with it. But it just cost him one position. And as championship contenders go, he'll continue to be so. And, you know, your guy, McLaughlin, to win the championship, you know, doesn't come away with the points he deserved for this race. My guy does in the podium finisher in Scott Dixon, who continues to do what Scott Dixon does. He hangs around. I think this is now seven podium finishes at St. Petersburg for for Scott Dixon without a victory. So he's second four times, now third three times. He just hangs around at St. Pete. That's why he's always in a position to win a championship. TracksideOnline.com had this stat, his 193rd top five, tying him with Mario at the top of the all-time list. He has been in the top five in 52.3% of his career races. Just simply remarkable. And all of this first segment kind of goes along with what Marcus Erickson said in Victory Lane, that he gets overlooked. I think it's fair to say uh, this reporter does not overlook Marcus Erickson, I have been one of his biggest cheerleaders for the last three years, and I'm feeling pretty good about one of the reasons I said I'll take the over on eight and a half winners is because 
I think when you're at eight, not everybody's counting on a Marcus Erickson win. I was counting on a Marcus Erickson win. We got that already. We'll talk more about the sneaky Swede coming up in just a moment. Get to some of your Twitter questions, which will take us to two cars airborne in this race early on and much more coming up. Trackside 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. All right, before we continue, and we have a lot to cover tonight, uh, including some things and some interesting nuggets off the track that we'll get to, Nathan Brown with a really interesting story about Andretti Autosport that was in today's Indianapolis Star, or at least online today that I, I've read. And there was also a, a media gathering with Chip Ganassi, who confirmed a couple of things heading into the weekend. But let's go to Twitter that I think will cover some of the other developments in the opening weekend at St. Petersburg from Chad Bunch at BunchyCB, who does use the hashtag trackside, which helped me find this. I haven't seen the onboard from Peterson for the first crash. Any information about why he was still going so fast? It seemed like everyone checked up except him and maybe Connor. Maybe he was looking over at Connor. Great broadcast this weekend. What do you think? Uh, I think it's a combination, and I'm I'm speaking totally from from no information here. I, I just I'm going to surmise because I think I can. It's fair to assume a couple things. One, it's his first three corners of IndyCar racing action. He has many things he's trying to keep track of. He's a professional, but this is his first race. And mm -hmm. whether he's looking at Connor, whether he's looking at, you know, some other indicator. Uh, the other thing I would say is, again, I've not been a driver, but your driver probably can attest to this. It's not a, I wouldn't call it a blind corner. It's not that, but it's not the most visible corner in racing. You know, it's, it's, Sight lines are not easy to come by. Uh, let's just put it that way. It's it's not the easiest to see through. So all those things factored in probably was the biggest contributor. I, I've seen comments on questions like this about, well, his spotter should have told him. No chance. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's it's very possible that there is no spotter in that section. This isn't like an oval where a spotter is seeing the entire race course. Most teams will have a spotter somewhere. It's possible they don't have a spotter anywhere. But I would guess that his coach, Jonathan George, was somewhere somewhat spotting coaching, but he may not have been in that section. Uh, even if he was, you got about two seconds. So, uh, you know, ideally he would have backed off a little bit. He was still going to T-bone him. But I, I, I suspect what mostly happens is he's right behind, I think it was Connor, I may have been wrong, but he was right behind someone and someone weaves out and, whoa, there's a car because you can only see the car in front of you. And, okay, you hear there's an issue um, and you generally would back off a little bit, but but sometimes people have been successful of, well, I'm either going to hit it or I'm not. So uh, I might as well try to pick up a spot uh, and, and I keep going because I don't think there was any scenario where he doesn't crash now would have been better 
if he had backed down a little bit and he doesn't send Devlin DeFrancesco into the air. You know, ultimately what we're saying is, I don't know, only Benjamin Peterson and A.J. Foyd Racing, after looking at all the information, would know that. And if he was in error, that would be addressed. But I think it's possible that there's not a whole lot he can do. Maybe he could have slowed down just a little bit, but I think fully blaming Peterson might be too harsh in that situation. Well, I think it, I think it's too harsh. I now again we go back to the McLaughlin discussion from the first segment. Is he gonna is he gonna have some of the blame? It's possible, yes. I mean, but I think there's too many circumstances, too many uh, contributing factors to this one. Uh, you know, it's easy to to bench race while you're watching a monitor and you're not sitting in a seat. But, you know, it, it could have been just, you know, even Simon Pagino, he went to the right and and got clipped by what happens if, you know, it just kind of if if the car in front of him just veers a little bit differently, that's a different result. So, you know, there's so many bang, bang situations in play here. Um I don't it would be very hard pressed for any of us aside from from Benjamin to to speak on what happened and and why it played out the way it did. Chad also asks um any idea why there were no sweepers this weekend seems like the cautions provided some time to clear the marbles. So I guess one I don't know that there were no sweepers so I will just trust your information. He's probably referring to watching on the TV broadcast, seeing all of the marbles that they highlighted on the front stretch. But those are not in the racing line. It doesn't really matter if they're all those marbles, driver's right, going down the main straightaway, especially at the uh, kind of the exit of the final corner. Nobody's going there. Now, preferably, you would not like to see all those marbles, driver's right to the inside of turn one. And if they were there, that probably does mean there there weren't uh, there weren't sweepers. So if indeed they did not sweep here, in my opinion, would be the answer. How often do we hear complaints about yellows are too long, Kurt? Yeah. Uh, sweepers, so that, that would, that would sweepers, be the reason. Sweepers yeah. are slow and it takes them a while to get around the racetrack. So, you know, more, the more I think about it, here would be the reason. In, unless you, NBC did, did everybody a solid. So I, I know I'm biased. I work for the company and we get ripped anytime we miss the start of a race because a previous event goes long. It's the same situation. You try to finish the event that's on the air, but you can't always do that. And sometimes you have to look at business and how many people will be watching the following event. And in my opinion, NBC showed that they are a very willing and interested and good partner to IndyCar because the following event had... Twice the audience, more than twice. I'll look it up. I saw the numbers, but it, it's a big golf tournament uh, that was going on, and it got a good rating. What did it get? It drew 3.3 million viewers, a two rating, which is about three times what the IndyCar race got. So for them to delay by a half hour, uh, I think, shows the commitment, but there's only so long you can go. And so I'm, what I'm saying is there was some urgency. And if you want to sweep during those cautions and you add another 10 minutes to that race and it's looking at some point like it's not going to be over until 315, there might be a point where the network has to say, I'm sorry, 
we make more money off the commercials in the next program with that audience and they pay a bigger rights fee, you're going to Peacock. Yeah. So that would be my opinion is if indeed they did not sweep and maybe they did, maybe they did. I don't know. And I remember at, as it approached the two thirty Eastern time, uh, cutoff point for what it was scheduled. I kept thinking we're going to see, you know, NBC make a tough decision here. I, I didn't know which way it would go. I'm not involved in that decision-making process, but I thought, and I started to see some, some Twitter chatter about it. You know, NBC's running out of time. I did see that uh, apparently uh, not all of, of, of North America went and stayed with the, stay with the race. I saw some Canadian fans say, I'm now watching golf. So it NBC was was the US portion and they stayed with it and I agree that's a huge solid. And and I maybe there was Canadian social media that I saw, but I saw some others saying I lost the last half hour of the race. That could also be your local affiliate. You know that there was an advantage to being on cable television that you're not dealing with affiliates and we've seen this before especially for these noon starts with a 30-minute pre-race show that the affiliates often are running an infomercial that they get paid for and they don't pick up the pre-race or they might even start 30 minutes in and they have the ability to do that. So I'm assuming, and some of the small stations, affiliates, they might be automated. And it says 2.30, we're going to something else and there's no one in the office on a Sunday afternoon uh, to, to make that change. So that's why it's nice to have Peacock. And, you know, I, I know we have been we like the instant click that regular linear television has. And there is, you know, it takes us an extra 15 seconds and maybe even up to a minute to, to navigate to a streaming app, no matter what streaming app it is. So I, I like we always say third world problems, but at least there is an option. If you feel like you've got to see this sporting event, we can guarantee that you can see it most of the time there's always the <laughs> possibility of a tactical snafu but generally speaking that is the case thanks for the question chad uh paul at pkdodi mead was mclaughlin's unforced air taking out grosjean caused by him pitting a lap too late i think they referred to that that if we we maybe should have just pitted I don't know if he said that or Kyle Moyer did. I think I think Scott might have said that somewhere in another interview after the race that, yeah, maybe in hindsight we should have just pitted with him because I'll take my chances with our pit crew beating them off the pit lane. Yeah, I, I actually thought that at the time, but it did appear that he was making, you know, better uh, he was able to go longer, stronger, if you will. So I wasn't that surprised that he stayed out longer, but but uh, but it did it did raise the question. Bartles ninety nine asks: Is IndyCar aware their timing and scoring didn't work on the new app? Could never get the audio buffering pop up to go away. Couldn't scroll and couldn't change settings to make it stop. Well, they are now because you tagged them. That's the way to do that. Let the, let them know that. So uh, it may have been simply for you. Uh, could be that your signal wasn't good enough. Could be there was a glitch because so many people were using it. I don't know. I am. I can barely get the television on in my home. So I am the wrong person to ask for technical questions. As you know, Kurt, every week is a struggle for me to hook up to to do this show. Something has changed every week and I can't get my headphones to work. I can't get the microphone to work. 
That telecommunications degree could have served me better. Yeah, it really could. <laughs> Remember that the the app was got a refresh and it uh, started last week. And um, it looks pretty cool. I haven't opened it up yet, but yeah, from what I good. read about it, the assets look pretty cool. Racecontrol.indycar.com uh, also had trouble with the timing and scoring. So I don't think that was a function of the app uh, because it was it seemed to be troublesome on the on the website as well so i'm sure and i'm fully convinced that that that'll get rectified okay i'll pause twitter questions for there we will continue with more and uh plenty more to dissect around this season opening race in st petersburg some time off we'll reset and we've got some off-track conversation to get to coming up as well it's trackside 93.5 the fan whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hi, this is Scott Dixon, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Okay, back for the final segment of this hour. Uh, I, I think what I want to do here really quickly, Kurt, this is a short segment. I know this has nothing to do with racing, and we didn't discuss this before the show, but we both lost a good friend uh, that we've worked with in different capacities for a long time. Indianapolis people are aware of him, and this is you know, the only uh, public local program that I do. So I just want to wish my best to the friends and family of David Benner, longtime public relations director. I think he likely had a different title than that, but he was in charge of PR, communications, for the Pacers since, well, he started there just about the time that I started in the mid-90s, maybe a few months before. And before that, he worked with you as a sports writer at the Indianapolis Star. He'd been battling cancer off and on for the last dozen years or so, retired last year. And I'm a bit out of the loop. I really am not involved much in, in what happens in Indianapolis. I saw his brother, Bill at a game a couple of months ago and and asked how it was going and, you know, didn't get any indication that something was coming. So I was uh, very surprised, but apparently his, his closest friends knew this was coming. So deepest thoughts, very sad. I really, really like David Benner. Yeah. And he, and he was a big race fan too. Loved, loved covering the Indy 500 uh, in our days together at the star. I think he joined the Pacers in 94 so I had worked with him about nine years, um, almost nine years, considering my internships there. Uh, but loved NASCAR, loved IndyCar, loved the Indy 500, and um, you know certainly will be missed. He had great wit, and um, you know it's it's hard to lose one of your brothers, and uh, yeah. that's what he was to many of us. Uh, there's a memorial tomorrow at Gamebridge Fieldhouse where the Pacers play downtown at 11 a.m. in Indianapolis on Wednesday morning. Okay, coming up in hour number two, back to your Twitter questions as we continue to cover the wild events at St. Petersburg. We'll get into some uh, good journalism for the last few days as well, uh, uncovering some nuggets and plenty more coming up, including the, the Junior Formula recap. I'm saving that for the end of the show uh, so for those of you that do not care, I'll warn you and you can move on. But we'll talk about Indy Next, the newly branded formerly Indy Lights, which also that race was just as wild as the IndyCar race. I would encourage you to go to the replay of that on Peacock and find that. We'll talk about much more coming up. Trackside 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Hi, this is Mark Zerickson and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hour number two, Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan in Indianapolis. Kurt Cavan, Kevin Lee, Eddie Garrison is in our Indianapolis studios. I should check the schedule before I forget. Uh, let's see. Next week would be March 14th. Oh, we are very simple for quite some time. We are every Tuesday in the foreseeable future. So the schedule only goes through the end of the NBA season. It is TBD, whether the Indiana Pacers make the playoffs or not at this point. Um, but we know we are 7 until 9 through at least Tuesday, April 25th. So we'll see you back here next Tuesday night. Uh, I want to knock a few more Twitter questions out of the way before we get back into some of the other stories and just kind of see where this takes us. Andrew Rowlandson, the real Wilba, asks, is 27 cars too many? No, it's not too many. Now, I would say that at St. Petersburg with and he brings this up because you have a you have a big crash at the start of the race and it collects six or seven cars. I get that. You could have that happen anywhere. It depends on, you know, a, a crash and how many cars are collected is dependent on on where the accident happens. You know, everything behind the accident is in peril at that point. You're you're going to be in survival mode, so to speak. So that's the first element. The second element is is how wide is the racetrack? Where where is the escape uh, for for a trailing driver? So that's a second element. And in both these cases, you know, the crash happens fairly far, or the uh, the initial trouble happens fairly forward in the race field. And there's not a lot of escapability, and that's a really fast part of the racetrack. 27 cars on a 1.8-mile track is probably pushing uh, the limits. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. I think it's a it's certainly a question that's fair, but I think that there's more than enough room. You know, it also depends largely on, on how many pit boxes you have. This one certainly has enough at St. Pete. And they have a formula for how many cars should be on the racetrack. Of course, that's famously, you know, figured up at Indianapolis, uh, where they figured a certain number of cars over a certain amount of distance at a certain amount of four, speed, four hundred feet or something like that, is was the math equation they used in nineteen. Yeah, there was there was a math equation. <laughs> Look, twenty seven cars at St. Pete uh, is not an issue. Um, it does, you know, if if you have contact early up in the field. It's going to be a problem depending on how quickly uh, that accident comes. You know, if that accident is on lap six, and when I say the accident, the contact between Scott Dixon and and uh, Felix Rosenquist, that's what started the accordion effect. If that happens on lap six, when the field has spread out a little bit, you're not asking the question if 27 cars is too many. Because drivers would have had more time, space, and ability to avoid the incident or get slowed down. Well, I will say this for Andrew's question. At least one driver said 27 cars is too many, and this is what you get kind of off the record in conversation. And I got the impression that 
somebody else agreed with that. So it is a somewhat debatable topic. Uh, I tend to think that it's it's fine, but so it has been. If it's, it's 24 cars, now it's I, better. I, yeah, exactly. I don't know what that difference is going to make. I think part of that opinion goes into multiple things. There is some opinion that once you get past 24-ish cars, it really doesn't add to the event, and you might be better off trying to make the 24 programs stronger than having entries 25, 26, and 27. But it doesn't always work that way. It's not as simple as just to say, well, the sponsors on car 27, 26, and 25 are just going to go somewhere else. In some cases, the sponsors on those cars are their parents and their parents' connections. Uh, So they're not sponsoring someone else's car. So that's a little more simplistic. As someone who uh, has a lot of friends in the industry, uh, that's three more. You know, basically, that's another, what, 25 jobs, at least, that you're looking at. Probably more than that. You're talking three cars. So I like to see uh, a nice car count. I, I am in the, the I'm in the group that I don't get worried if the car count is 24. Um, I don't think it – the show is fine. Now, you get to more like 22 and below, you start to worry a little bit about it. But generally speaking, the more the merrier. There are always drivers without a ride that are qualified. And it's not like they're, I don't believe we feel there are any drivers that aren't qualified this year. So it's fine. It's fine. And but I think the question is based on a on a first lap accident where you know, it depends where the initial contact is and what the escapability is based on, you know, everybody's at speed and they've just come up to speed and they're bunched together as closely as they will be all day. Circumstances were just ripe for an accident, whether there was 22, 24 or 30 cars, you're still going to have the the situation. The accident didn't happen because there was 27 cars. It didn't happen because there was 27 cars. I guess you could say, though, the airborne happened because there was a 27th car. It was car number 27. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah, OK. <laughs> I can drop it. Yeah, I, I think ultimately you're right. But, um, you know, I guess if you want to get technical, it is the last two or three beyond 24. But if those couple of rows don't crash, maybe somebody else. But the point I was making to Andrew is fair question. Other people are talking about it. John Bull Jr. says, I agree with Davey Hamilton. A few rows of tires need to be removed from turn four. We still had a a great weekend in St. Pete. Um, And then John also asked, why can't turn 10 be open up to allow two cars side by side? There's room if you remove the rumble strip. So I'm not smart enough to know whether, you know, how to design a track. You know, it was interesting. I'll say this. It was interesting. So I did the track walk like I often do, and we're kind of mixed in with drivers, and we just kind of walk around and all chat, and we see something, and we're asking somebody, isn't this different than last year? And yeah, this is a little bit different. And what I've heard, uh, someone was telling a story that they knew a track designer, and they had a specific plan that where exactly they wanted barriers to be, and they get there, and the guy's putting the track together is, nah, it's not going to go there. We're going to move it over here. So they'll move things, you know, a couple of feet and not worry about it very much. And it's a challenge and it is a push to get things back. So sometimes things end up where they are because that's where they are. And we can kind of see 
from colored pavement and shadows and marks where maybe a barrier or a curb has been the year before. And that's how we start noticing, hey, wait a minute, this corner is more shallow here. And there were some changes in the track this year, but specifically to your questions, uh, I would tend to to trust what Davey has to say more about the turn four area than than I would. And he had, yeah, he would have been on the track because he was driving the two-seater this weekend as well. I always wonder about the question that you ask about an opening because I always feel like these street circuits, just in general, I would love to have them a little bit more wider to encourage more passing opportunities, to encourage a better chance of getting through the corners. But you are limited. There's a, you know, the reason the tires are as deep and stacked as they are is because, you know, they have found through research and trial and error and, and crashes in the past that, that that's how many it takes to slow down a race car. Yep. Uh, I don't blame that. Now, the, could the, could turn four be a little bit wider? Maybe, but I don't know what's on the other side of that wall. I don't know if there's a curb there from a, you know, the pedestrian sidewalk or, you know, what's on the other side, but, um, you know, it's you're right. There is some adjustment every year, uh, but it's it's very minimal. Sean Noonan asks: Has any of the changes to the cars from last year to this year potentially created any reliability handling issues? Saw some odd things with this first race weekend of the season that seemed to be mutually exclusive from the issues with the track. Nothing to me is coming to mind that was odd. You know the. Plenum event, uh, plenum event is odd, but as I mentioned, I've heard that word before. I've heard that happening at least three or four times. I remember it happening to a Ganassi car. I can't recall if it was Dixon or somebody else a few years ago, but I know I've heard of it happening at least two or three times in the past. So that's not a change. Uh, so I guess my answer is my answer is no. <laughs> I don't think any changes made to the cars added to anything going on this year yeah there was some discussion about the brakes i didn't have a chance to really dig into the brakes and some people were to me that felt like a first race of the season situation apparently that was refuted you know there's a differing opinion um but some people swear there are some different changes somewhere along the line but the official answer was there have been no changes in that department so we'll leave it at that yeah i would i would tend to follow that PD Lounge, Paul Davis, great race on Sunday. I wish IndyCar and NBC's opening would feature the drivers with names displayed, the same way the F1 intro does, so fans develop familiarity with them. You could have a few different openings featuring 10 drivers. You could. There's no right or wrong way to do those things. If somebody has to make a decision on these things, I would say this. We are more limited in the time that we have from the time we go on the air until the green flag than Formula One is. Now, yes, if you talk about the actual broadcast where they show that, I can't remember if they show that. I think that's 10 minutes before the lights go out where they do that. But they've been on the air for either 60 or 90 minutes before with their Sunday morning pre-race show. So they've already had 90 minutes. So that's just the philosophy. They, they've decided that we're going to do that and have a glitz there. I think our philosophy is, you know what? That's 45 seconds. We'd rather have content. We'd rather explain to people that might have been watching the previous program and haven't turned the channel yet 
why this might be interesting. So let's immediately get to a big highlight glitz package or show helicopter shots that show, wow, this is cool. I wish I was there. Something like that to bring you in. I'm not sure if someone that doesn't know uh, our sport, if they see a minute of pictures of all 27 drivers, and that's going to probably take longer than that, if that's going to encourage them to stay tuned in. So if you go back and watch old races, which I do with some regularity, or at least aspects of those races, you notice, and it's very apparent, the difference in philosophy between then and today. They'll stick a graphic up. This is a picture of Derek Daly, and this is what he looks like with his name. And this is Gary Bettenhausen, and this is where he's from. And, and you know, there's no development of the storylines. It's just here's the guys, and it does. It takes a while to, to to run through that list. And, you know, the announcer will make one sentence comments about all those drivers. And you're right. I don't I think in terms of trying to understand what's about to happen and with the limited time you have, you know, it probably could if you just showed the the driver's faces help in the grand scheme of things, but I think you have to set the interest level for that moment. And I would also say that there is a graphic on the left side of the screen that shows a picture of the driver. You know, they kind of talk about the first four or five rows, and then they continue to show the grid while they move on. So I'll bring something up that I see on social media. And my friend Champ Webb, who has great content on Twitter, that's become his thing, is that he is very angry that there is not a full field grid showed like they did in the 80s and the 90s. So Hinch and I brought this up on one of our preseason calls, and uh, Hinch brought it up. He's in stronger standing, I think. He has, has, I think, a, a more relevance with current drivers and just said, hey, people have asked about this. What do you all think? And I think the answer we got back was a good one. We both said, oh, yeah, makes sense. And their point was, we've seen that on some other broadcasts in recent years and and watching it. It just drags on. If if you try to go through 27 drivers, that drags on. And one, sometimes you don't get all the way through the end, and you've kind of shortchanged the end uh, the last three or four rows. And two, you're losing people. We all have short attention spans these days. Snap, snap, let's move on. We could tell a different story here. Uh, the people watching that are hardcore fans probably know who all 27 drivers are, and just showing their picture on the screen and what place they're starting is probably not going to make you a fan of that driver. You, you need some time to develop that, and then there's no way to, to really tell a full story of every single driver. The other thing you got to remember is, if you're a fan of of this sport right now, is the competition level is so high and there are so many drivers that have a chance to to be a factor in the race that the broadcast covers most of the drivers these days. Back in, back in the 80s, you go back and watch a race, the race was settled between about three guys. And three guys were always, it was Mario, Foyt, and Rutherford and a couple of uncers. You know what I mean? It was not... You know, you wouldn't have a reason to talk about a Callum Eilat starting in in twenty second place. But so today, maybe that's why they did the grid just to make sure that we got a chance. Everybody everybody's got names time. got mentioned. Everybody yeah. got TV time, and yeah. you know, you, you mentioned 
if you went back and 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 looked at the broadcast, I would suspect that you you guys talked about twenty three of the twenty seven drivers. I don't even remember much about Canapino, but I was particularly following him given his first race. Mm-hmm. He was one of the few guys that really didn't come up in the broadcast, but I think you got to just about everybody else. So I'm looking at the uh, box score, and he got a mention in the post race. It was he quick. Got a, he, it was quick. He got a lot of airtime in Peacock leading up to it, but I think you're right that he wasn't really mentioned much. I don't know that Callum was mentioned until fairly late in the race. There was some others on... were mentioned because of contact. For example, Marcus Armstrong uh, was had, had a, a flat tire, and then Malukas was the one that hit him and had to serve a penalty. So that's where they got mentioned. Stingray got mentioned because I went down and looked at his car because he was involved in the carnage. Yeah, everyone else that was in the race, everyone got a mention. I would say Lungard kind of flew below the radar until late in the race. That's kind of some of the things that we're thinking about. Hey, what have we not talked about? And I said, I raised my hand and said, we've not really talked about Ray Hall, Letterman, Landigan. Let's give them a shout out. They've moved forward in the race. They were not especially quick. It was somewhat attrition, but it was still a good day for them, especially in in their new situation. The broadcasters got a chance. This was smart by Kathy Lauterbaugh, longtime public relations specialist for Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan. She invited us to sit down with her new technical director, Stefano Sordo, from, who came over from McLaren in Formula One, and we spent 45 minutes with him, getting to know him, his philosophies, and some of that intel will be shared throughout the season. And I really like what I had to hear from him. Uh, and, and I think Townsend shared one of these nuggets at one point. He said, uh, essentially, our number one piece of data, our number one source of intel, our best technology is the drivers. That's where it's 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 not wind tunnel. It's not damper program. It's the drivers. So we rely on them to tell us what we need to do with the cars and uh, it may take a little bit of time, but I am pretty optimistic that they're going to be stronger this season. Uh, okay, next question is from Gianluca, Gianni98. I hope we'll have less caution periods in the upcoming street road races. I'd rather have caution-free races to see how strategy and pace from everyone unfolds. What's your opinion? So as a purist, yeah, that's fantastic. You definitely see who's the best. As a fan of entertainment, no, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> now, as a fan of someone paying crash damage uh, in the junior formula categories, yes, green to checkers is what I want to see. I do not like street races if I am uh, responsible for raising the money to pay for those damages. As a fan, not responsible for that. Unfortunately, chaos is more interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, and there's a fine line. There's a fine we, line. We might have had a little too much in this one. We had a little bit too much in Nashville last year, but I'll still choose that over a green to checkers road course race where someone wins by 30 seconds. Agreed. I think I think you want to have you you want to have some of that action, some of that, you know, cars askew, but you want the cleanup to be short. I think long cleanups and red flags are not good for the sport. Jackson's uh, second race of the weekend was after the IndyCar race. It was supposed to start at 3 o'clock, and 
we didn't know that when I scheduled our flights and 8 p.m. flight. I ah, well, plenty of time. We'll go to dinner. And then it was, oh, it's after the IndyCar race. That Okay, we're still fine. Good thing I scheduled that instead of the 6 p.m. flight, which was another option. But we barely made the 8 p.m. flight. And we're standing there waiting and waiting and car back on the back of the hook. Another car in the back of the hook. They had to go and retrieve all of those cars that were left scattered around the track. And then at some point, I heard a report that water got dumped on the track. Uh, and I, th- I think it was like an hour and 45 minutes between races before they got his race started. So, uh, finally, finally got to that. Ken Johnson asks at Ken again, Oh boy, great idea to have a month in between races. Nothing like building momentum, genius marketing plan. I'm glad he asked that because I've seen that mentioned before when the schedule came out, uh, essentially that it's, it's inexcusable to have this long of a break. Now, to me, the word inex no. So I'll I'll say this: it's not ideal and it's not preferred. I really wish they were racing next week or sometime before the first Sunday in April at Texas Motor Speedway, which is what three weeks away. How many weekends off are there? Two weekends so, off. So they'll be off on the tw- on the twelfth, the nineteenth, and the twenty sixth. So three weekends off. Okay, three. Um, so it's not, I, you're telling me that's two, no, three, three weekends off. Okay. Um, you'd like to continue racing, but I think you have to look at the circumstances and it's not inexcusable because someone has to be willing to host you for a race. Yeah. And you also have to keep in mind that the Sebring 12 hours is coming up on the 18th. And that's not good for the people involved in your business. It's really not good from an entertainment standpoint, too. If you like racing, our kind of racing, watch Sebring. You're going to see most of our drivers there anyway. Yeah, right. And, right. and a lot of the teams. So just kind of count that one in. But if you could have found a race this next weekend, great. Maybe you could have found one the 25th, but it's not that simple. It's not – you just don't snap your fingers and say – we're going to race. You have to find someone that is willing to have you and pay you money. If you want to lose $5 million and go rent a track somewhere, you could find a race somewhere. Um, but that's the way it is. Enjoy Sebring. I hope you'll be with us on Peacock and USA coming up on Saturday the 12th. All right, coming up, we'll get to some of the news off track and still many things I think to get to as we roll through the box score from the opener at St. Pete. It's Trackside, 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hi, this is Scott McLaughlin, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. All right, what have we not covered so far? We kind of touched on the first crash a little bit, but I went back and fast-forwarded several times today to see what happened we're talking about the one on the opening lap and we referenced this earlier that uh dixon made contact with rosenquist up ahead dixon apologized for that thought he was clear uh rosenquist damage finished 40 some laps down came back out later so then it is kind of that accordion effect after from what i could tell so we, we saw you know i think it was mentioned that ferrucci got into the back of Elio Castroneves, 
and there really wasn't any room in front of Elio. So it's not like Elio slowed too abruptly. It was ahead of that. So what I think happened was Marcus Armstrong, as everyone checks up ahead, and I didn't look at the card in front of him, I think was Alexander Rossi. So Rossi's a little closer to the scene. He slows up a little bit. Armstrong hits the back of him. Then Armstrong wiggles, so he's significantly slower. Elio sees that. He slows down. Ferrucci hits them, and then all chaos behind him. So that's what happens there. But that was not our only airborne incident of the day. Kyle Kirkwood uh, was airborne a little later on. Yeah, uh, Renus VK has an issue going into turn four and and is going to end up in the tire barrier. And and Jack Harvey can't you know can't avoid that situation. And uh, then Kyle Kirkwood is trailing, and again, not a lot of places to to escape. Uh, not enough time to escape. Uh, it's a busy racetrack, even on with low car count, and um, then runs over the back of of uh, Jack Harvey's car gets in the air. You know, it's amazing, really. I mean, there's a lot of amazing things. First of all, we haven't even said the aero screen did a terrific job in in uh, Benjamin Peterson's case in that first yeah. lap accident. Uh, Jay Fry tweeted out a short video that shows, illustrates just all the damage to the nose of Benjamin's car from hitting Devlin Francesco, And then, you know, the the mark on the, on the aero screen, which is, you know, would have you know, at least somehow got into the cockpit ordinarily in years past. Uh, obviously a, a big help for for that accident. But what I'm amazed by in the Kirkwood one, because he goes over the top of, it's the way he landed. He landed nose first, then the, the back half of the car slammed down on the ground. That would have been, I mean, there is virtually no floor in those cars the fact he doesn't have a broken back is is pretty remarkable. That was a big mm-hmm. secondary hit, uh, and one that in years past we've seen we've seen fractures with that were far less dramatic uh, in terms of the the accident. So anyway, uh, you no, know, it's well pointed out the the seat. I would think is the technology in the seat is what's protecting him to some extent. And then the fact that the car, the Delara car, can launch like that. And as he came down, he said, I'm okay. The car's not. And I'm he's probably just assuming there's no way this thing is going to run. Turns out it's the front wing. <laughs> yeah. And he, at one point after that, set the fastest lap of the race. So he wasn't just limping around. He was still, still had the pace. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. And Jack Harvey had uh, obviously some sore wrist or or hands or some some portion of his his uh, lower arms were uh, in pain. They, got, they took him and got him checked. All things were were good. He posted a video later in the evening, and uh, so here we go for for the break. So when we mentioned Kyle Kirkwood, we probably probably should have moved this up higher in the show, but I didn't want to pile on anymore. What happened to Andretti Autosport from could have qualified one, two, three, still one, two, five, top two in the race, all three great cars to the car that was seven feet off the ground was their best finisher, 15th, three laps down. Oh, so we remember the one, two, three, four, and oh, five, 
And then we talked about, I brought this up in the production meeting, and I know they already had this in in the tape room, what happened at the end of 20 when St. Peter was at the end of the year, and they had three cars that looked like they could win, and none of them finished up high. In two of these instances this weekend, you know, they were taken out by drivers who were issued penalties. Uh, mm-hmm. Herda was taken out by Will Power, or at least hip-checked. Um, Power was penalized. Yeah. And Power was penalized, and then Grosjean was taken out by McLaughlin, who was penalized. Kirkwood had nowhere to go, so there's three, and Devlin DeFrancesco obviously was was collected in that first lap accident. So, you know, just a bad day. But, you know, and, and this doesn't really speak to those guys, but we often talk about how important qualifying is. Simon Pagano had a really good car, and it looked like he might qualify at least in that, that top half of the field as a second-round qualifier. He makes a mistake down in turn four in the qualifying session, loses his two fastest laps, and therefore starts on the last row or or near the last row. I don't remember if it was actually the last row. I, ha- I don't have the box score in front of me. But he's starting in the back, then is collected in the race uh, on the first lap. So if he's in the... 12th, 11th, 10th place starting position, he's not in that accident. So when we talk about how important qualifying is, there's example primo number one. Yep. Yeah, the farther back you are, the more likely something is to happen. That would be the only cons that would be the only consolation for Andretti. It's not like mid Ohio where they all ran over each other, or like St. Pete in 20, where I think, generally speaking, the drivers all made the mistakes. Actually, Marco didn't make the mistake. I believe, I believe Marco was taken out, but Rossi made a mistake, and Hinch made a mistake in that situation. Um, so they're fast. They're they're back. We think it's a street course where they've generally been good, but uh, all things considered, they showed that they might have something for this year. And then there's this story that Nathan Brown of the Indianapolis Star posted today on Andretti. So we all kind of wondered time-wise when some things were agreed to. And we both said before that, okay, just because we find out in August doesn't mean that a deal wasn't done all around the Indy 500. Turns out, in their case, it it seemed to have been before that. So here are some of the nuggets, and I would encourage you to read this story at IndyStar.com. Uh, Michael Andretti was setting the 2023 lineup, this year's lineup, in the spring of 21. Because at the time, they thought they were going to get a Formula One program to buy Sauber, I think was the the plan at that time. And they were moving Colton Herta to Formula One. So at that point, he asked Alexander Rossi if he was going to return. Wanted to go ahead and finalize picking up the driver option for 23. His contract ended at 22 but there was a driver option. So we've all been under the impression that Rossi made this decision at the end of at the end of the 21 season is kind of the way it's been stated that I already knew over the winter going into last season that I wasn't going to come back. Michael is going to differ from what Alexander has said publicly and said no, he told us at that time. So the next New nugget is that then Andretti moved to sign Kyle Kirkwood, who was early on in his Indy Lights season, which turned out to be a championship season. Now we might know whenever we any of us talk to Kyle Kirkwood 
about next year when he would say, I have nothing definitive, didn't seem too concerned about things. Now, Kyle said that he actually didn't sign until the spring of 22, but whatever, semantics, he maybe agreed to terms, had a handshake agreement. Maybe he didn't technically sign so Kyle can. And by the way, I wouldn't blame him if he didn't tell us the truth because he needs to protect himself in that situation. So they've already made that move. They had already decided that Devlin DeFrancesco was moving up to the IndyCar program in 2022. And then here's a new, another new one. We wondered last summer what Grosjean might do. Might he return to Dale Coyne Racing? Yeah, Michael said they had him signed early in 21, early on in his first season with Dale Coyne Racing. Then here's a new one. We'll see what the reaction is on this. Michael told Nathan Brown that Rossi soon changed his mind and said, uh, I would like to come back. Or who knows, maybe it's I at least want to keep the option open. But Michael said, sorry, too late. And then eventually said it all worked out. He needed a change of scenery. We probably did as well. And then the other nugget in there is that uh, in going back to mid-Ohio and so forth last year, that it was Rossi and Grosjean that led to some of the issues last year of them butting heads. Quote, Roman's issues in 2022, I think, were really between him and Alex. And then that carried over through the whole team. You've got to be very careful when you have a big team because one guy can screw everything up. They just did things the wrong way. Just don't carry that on the racetrack and use your car as a weapon. After that, things did get a lot better. I set the law down a little differently, but 100%, I think change was good for Alex and good for us. I think we both needed a change of scenery. How about that one? And would you like some more? Sure. The mechanics went rogue. <laughs> did you notice that? Uh, so we had a lot of little mechanical issues, and the problem was, and I'm paraphrasing, not reading it, that the mechanics were trying to do what they thought was best, but they weren't clearing it with the car chief, with the chief mechanic. And we had some errors in car prep, and we have addressed all of that. So to me, that's the mechanics going wrong. <laughs> <laughs> not really. And again, yeah, he, he understood it. They were trying to do what's best, but you, you might talk to the guy that's been there a little bit longer and ask what you think. So that was something. Good reporting by by Nathan in what year four now, maybe three or I guess it's year four, 2021, 20, 22, and 23. So he's he's certainly well connected, and that's why you need to read his stuff all the time. The other thing I saw uh from, and I think maybe a few people have this. I think it was more than Nathan that wrote this because I know Chip Ganassi had kind of a sit-down with uh several selected media's uh, members of the media. And, you know, he talked about the Pelot thing. And I think one of the items there is he was adamant that he didn't sue Alex Pelot. Uh, you know, that would depend on who you ask the definition of of suing. There were some legal matters going on. But the the thing that does matter going forward is that I can't remember what the press release said. Maybe we should we should look this up. I thought the press release said that uh, Takuma Sato was doing the ovals in the 11 car. So I'll, I'll look this up before the next segment, and and maybe you can look it up while I'm yapping here. But he said that Sato is only confirmed for Texas and in the Indianapolis 500, and Marcus Armstrong has already impressed us, and he might do an oval before this season is done because we haven't decided who who will be doing the ovals in the 11 car after the Indianapolis 500. So I wonder if that was news to Takuma Sato or not. Yeah, I don't know. I was going to do a lot of typing, and I got in trouble last week That's for, true. That's for true. typing, so, so I, I decided not to do it. Uh, but I'll look it up in a minute. 
but uh, it does. The stories all came away from the impression that he was going to run all the oval races. Um, here's the quote from Mike Hall. What a terrific opportunity to have Takuma Sato drive our number 11 Honda IndyCar on the ovals in 2023. Now, he well, that, say- that's still technically true. He is doing yeah. more than one oval. I guess you would just take out the you would say on ovals. <laughs> yeah, because he's doing multiple ovals. Um, anyway, did we, yeah. How long has this segment been going? I lost track of time. I got, I'm, <laughs> I'm in charge of time. Do I have time to, to bring up one more item here? Yeah, do it quick. Okay. Uh, I wanted to mention that Jordan Taylor is going to be driving a NASCAR cup race. He's going to be filling in for Chase Elliott in the nine car at Circuit of the Americas. Simon Pagano was confirmed today to return to the 24 hours of Le Mans in an LMP2 ride. For the first time since 2011, when he finished second overall. So that is really cool stuff on that front. Uh, meanwhile, coming up in just a moment, I'll I'll see what else we missed. Uh, we'll do a junior formula recap. Indy next was wild. Uh, the uh, ladder series formerly known as the road to Indy. We'll get into that and much more coming up. Trackside 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hi, this is Joseph Newgarden, and you're listening to Trackside. All right, final segment, but uh, still some good time to chat, and there's still a lot to cover. The good thing is, good or bad, we talked about this earlier uh, we have some time before the next event. So we'll go through the box score next week, give Marcus Erickson some more deserved love as well. Uh, Indy next by Firestone, the debut. And first of all, I was quite pleased that the play-by-play announcer on Peacock got the name of the series correct for the entire broadcast. So there's one sign on the wall in the booth, worked out nicely, and it was just as wild as the IndyCar race Uh, There were, what, four lead changes, which in a race without pit stops is difficult to do, several in position to win. And oh, by the way, the the grand experiment we've wondered about, how does it work with nine cars for one team? Well, HMD had eight of the top ten, and Daniel Frost won the race. Uh, He went from third to first, late on a restart, Jacob Abel at one point. Went third to first. Nolan Siegel led at one point. Louis Foster led. He brushed the wall. But well done by uh, Daniel Frost. Nolan Siegel goes from sixth to second. Frost started seventh. Jacob Abel was quick all weekend. Uh, he might be disappointed that he missed a chance to win, but I would stay say still really well done. He qualified second. He finished third. Christian Rasmussen fourth. Hunter McElray was one of those way back to start the race in 12th and he finished in fifth and he had a a big crash early in practice so that's a good recovery for him picking up some spots and staying very much in the championship mix meanwhile in what was known as the road to indy now the usf pro championships USF 2000 won by Lockie hughes from jay howard's team nikita johnson from vrd uh, one race two. He's from the Tampa area. I don't know Nikita, but congrats. Very cool of him to win a hometown race in USF Pro 2000. 
one step below Indy next. That's been rebranded this year. Christian Brooks won race number one. Miles Rowe won race number two. He's the championship leader now in that series. I think he had a podium in race one as well. And the unofficial driver of this program, Jackson Lee, I would say had a good weekend stepping up to USF Pro 2000 with the big kids. Uh, These guys and one lady are really good. They're 20 drivers. Uh, Lindsey Brewer has taken a nice step this season. Uh, She finished last season strong. She's on pace. And there are, boy, I think there are four or five drivers that easily could be budget allowed running in Indy next. Uh, I think they kind of looked at what Louis Foster did last year coming over from the UK, not knowing the tracks, won the championship, won the scholarship, and quite a few did the same thing this year. So, you know, we're kind of thinking for uh, rookie drivers and without a lot of testing time, if you can get and sniff close to mid-pack, you've done pretty well. So the way Jackson's weekend started, uh, limited practice. One practice time, there were some red flags. It was less than 20 minutes. And he was way back there. And I'm getting a little bit worried. And then after talking to him afterwards, he said, I didn't really get any clean laps. And, you know, as you might expect, with concrete walls, you're a little bit cautious. You crash in the first practice, your weekend is just about done. I didn't see any of the practice. I was doing other things. So just looking at timing and scoring. And then in qualifying, it was going well. In uh, the first tire run, he was around 12th, went to the second set of stickers, And then on his push lap, uh, just barely brushed the wall. Maybe could have continued, but just being safe, pitted. And uh, they found that maybe they couldn't see anything, but maybe the car is just barely out of alignment. So unfortunately, he starts 18th, and that's qualifying for both races. Race one, uh, just like last year, had to stop and turn four to avoid a crash in front of him and go into the runoff. So he restarts. Basically last, only those behind him were those that had pitted involved in contact, but he had several passes, moved up to 11th. Timing and scoring, if you were watching, showed him in ninth, but a couple of drivers didn't have uh, transponders that were working. So 11th, we think that's good. And then was moving from 18th to 12th in the second race. Good lap times, still getting quicker at the end of the race and, and gaining, but with, I think, two and a half laps to go, missed turn four so he said i maybe probably could have made it but you know you're outside the top 10 let's be safe so he went to the runoff lost three spots came home finishing 15th if he had maintained that spot he would have been tied for eighth and points still 12th and only four out of eight so all things considered we will say that is a really solid debut weekend and they're back at it in sebring in two and a half weeks the week after the 12 hour uh, one tweet, uh, Indy Chick said, uh, just hopped in the car as you started talking about David Benner. I'm glad I got to hear it. That reminded me as well. Old-time listeners to WIBC might remember Lou from South Bend. That was David Benner. He would call into Robin Miller's show with Jim Barber. I was a regular fill-in host. And I sat next to David uh, on the, next to the Pacers bench for, what, about 20 years. So I'm going to miss him, and we'll salute him tomorrow at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Thanks to Kurt. Thanks to Eddie Garrison in the studio. I'm Kevin. We'll see you next Tuesday night at 7 here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.